Welcome back, perfect peeps, to Perfect.dev. Today we are talking all about creating macro benefits from micro front ends. And as our guest today, we have Alex Gogan. What's up, Alex? Hey, Alex. How's it going? It's great. It's going to be one of those weird days of Alex and Alex, I think. I love it. As we were chatting uh, before the show, Alex, the other Alex, is actually Alex Sandru, whereas I'm Alexander. So it's kind of fun uh, playing off that a little bit. It's always good to have to love you for like being just super unique. I love that. <laughs> um, so I, I, before I get started, I wanted to kind of preface, Alex is actually the Director of Engineering at Sherpa. Is that still your title? Yes, that's still okay. correct. I want to make sure I didn't like get outdated in my notes. So Alex and I have been going kind of back and forth to, to get this pod lined up for a couple months now. So I want to just check in and see how things were. I was so happy that you were able to make it. And uh, we are actually working on a, a pretty massive project uh, at OST right now, um, talking all about micro front ends. So it's it's perfect timing. We were able to make this work, and hopefully, we can I can dig into like your crazy brain of knowledge that you have around this subject. Um, as you'll as you'll probably see throughout our slides and our discussion, uh, Alex has kind of been talking about this since at least what 2017, 2018? Uh, something like that. Yeah, uh, we yeah. take on micro frontends with a little bit different twist. So it's definitely an exciting topic that we've been tinkering a lot around. And there's a lot of movement, especially in the last uh, two years that has been seen around. Do you want to talk just a minute about um, what Sherpa is and what they do before, you know, we, we dive too far in and start to lose people? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, Sherpa is um, a startup based out of Toronto, and we are providing uh, visas as a travel um, auxiliary service for airlines. So that means that whenever you book a flight and need uh, a visa for your final destination, uh, you can book and apply for your visa right on the spot in a very integrated way. And that is where microfrontends for us specifically come in extremely interesting into play um, because we treat microfrontends as widgets or embedded elements, as we call them, um, and trying to like fit in within the placements and blend in into the host applications, specifically booking systems of uh, large enterprise clients. Um, as easy as possible. Very cool. Um, I, I think as we as we dive in here, we're we're gonna actually show some of Alex's older slides from a talk that he gave. But we're gonna talk about that and then kind of some of the newer aspects to uh, to micro front ends and and what's coming in the future. So I am going to share my screen. For those of you on audio, this might be a little bit of a heavy uh, video podcast. I would recommend probably jumping to the YouTube version of this one, but feel free if, if you can uh, listen along and still pull some, some goodies out of it here. So I'm going to share that screen now. And this is the, the slide deck that Alex was so kind to share with me. So we have again the macro benefits of micro front ends. I always there's a big debate. Um, my my wife often looks at like all of my titles and she does our chapter work for YouTube and she's like, "Is front ends one word or two words?" And I'm like, "Ooh, that is a hot debate." I can tell you that right now. And I always like using it like this as one word just for SEO purposes because front and end doesn't show up well together. It's great. <laughs> Well, it's actually a great tip. We're always debating, especially when we're creating new uh, job descriptions out there. How do you sprite this? How do you spell this? And there's so many variations. Oh, 
It's terrible. Go out on Dev Two and type in front space uh, or uh, front, yeah, space end. <laughs> You'll be amazed with what you get. You'll get a lot more consistency all together. So, um, yeah. So again, here's Alex. Uh, this is kind of his his slide deck. He was kind enough to update to Sherpa's new logo before we got going. So his marketing team will love that. Um, there's his his links, the the GitHub for this uh, this section of the NG Airways is is kind of like the model for front end micro uh, micro front end architecture that you have out there, right? Exactly. So that was like an example that I created uh, back in 2019 that was heavily utilizing Angular elements, um, kind of a web component part, um, Angular specific. Um, one solution to create uh, micro front ends. And um, for everyone who's interested, um, please feel free to like jump in there. Um, I haven't updated it. Uh, since then, a lot has happened. There's a lot of new, exciting projects that are coming out, specifically with Model Federation, um, that make just developers' lives so much easier in terms of splitting out front ends and various parts of that um, from like an architecture perspective. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll dive into that a little more too. Um, cool. So you got your sweet Power Rangers. I didn't mean to skip over it so fast. So Power Rangers slide over here. Um, and we, we touched a bit on the, the Sherpa widget and if at some point, you know, you want to dive in and show like a real, real time, how this looks and what a iframe does, we'll go through that too. Um, the first kind of piece to this, uh, is the adoption slide that we have up here. Do you want to talk a little bit timeline wise as, as this is broken down and what this, uh, kind of goes through for micro frontends? Yeah, so it basically outlines um, the, the life cycle of um, new technology topics and themes that are emerging. And we see that um, just around like April 2019, micro frontends have reached more an adoption phase. And now being able to reflect back on what has happened since then, um, it has really more matured. Uh, micro frontends are all over the place. Um, there's many, many uh, topics and talks across different frameworks. Um, that are not happening. It is still not something that has been unified and solved at a larger scale. Um, there's a lot of teams working on individual um, ways of solving that particular problem and trying to take the benefits. So it will definitely be a topic that will emerge even more over the next upcoming years. And I'm just really excited to see what um, standardizations or like larger frameworks uh, will make their way into mainstream and popularity. Yeah, I think we keep hearing it more and more and more. So it's it's really great to kind of see this, uh, especially like looking at kind of an older, not older, but a couple year old slide like this and seeing where it's progressed already. Um, so yeah, let's let's break down a little bit uh, why we would use uh, microphone and architecture, and and oops, and kind of like start to look at this monolithic um, example here. So. When you, when you have this development team um, listed out, and I'm, I'm trying to do my best for those listening on the audio side, um, basically Alex has laid out a front-end path, a back-end, and then a database. And across that is your entire team development. And when we get into this, it's, it's nice when you start to break up that front-end versus back-end. And a lot of times um, when you start to get into this front-end, back-end talk, this is really useful in... Um, kind of this older like monolithic to new age conversion that you start to go through. And we often call that like bimodal IT. So your, your backend and your kind of transactional business system moves really slow. 
But as everyone writes front end knows, like we are screaming along at a, a fast pace and changing all the time. So the, the final kind of piece to this is how the microservices approach um, kind of takes place there. Do you want to describe that a little more in depth, Alex, that far right one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was the first first initial step um, moving into this kind of microservice revolution almost that happened a couple of years back where um, a lot of teams just identified the need to break out these large monolithic um, elephant uh, solutions into smaller dedicated services that are easier to deploy, are more independent from each other but then need to be unified through an aggregation layer. So often in the architecture, it's like an API gateway. Um, it's a very backend heavy solution um, that gives a lot of teams a lot of freedom because uh, maybe search is uh, usually something that traditionally is a very dedicated purpose. And there's a lot of systems that have specialized in providing the best search experiences in a very performant way. And isolating that as a microservice is usually the first step into moving a microservice um, overall architecture. And that has spun off, like depending on the various business layers of each application, into several other chunks. Often it's around products, it's around payments. Having that separation really helps and enables a lot of the um, development process to uh, gain more momentum. But um, there's a one big caveat to that. Uh, the front end still has not been touched a lot. It, all on the API layer. So there's one unified API that still acts as a big monolith, one API that can handle and do everything. And behind the scenes, it's been split up um, into many, many microservices that is completely transparent, meaning you actually don't know which service is logically bound to which um, part. But the front end needs to tend to aggregate everything and handle everything that these giant microservices then are providing as individual pieces. I think that was like a very interesting revelation of like, yeah, the front end has not been able to catch up with the idea behind microservices. Yeah, for sure. It, it's been, and so for those who haven't worked in this space a lot, what we ended up seeing is, you know, if you take it down to like a WordPress level, we see like the Jamstack revolution kind of taking place. If you, if you look at like a large ERP, like SAP or something like that, and you want to take like the search offline or not offline, but into a separated category, you might now start just developing using AWS lambdas and get those really small microservices. So if something goes down, it doesn't take your entire ERP system down. It's just that one sliver and you can scale like immensely. But that's all again, as Alex said, on the back end. So what we're kind of going through today is how we can make this better on the front end. So we've we've got kind of these these different um, sections in this slide deck on how to achieve this. As Alex uh, kind of talks through this, so um, just on the illustration again, we've got a few different boxes on um, for each. So there's four micro front end boxes that are laid out here, and they're team discovery, team search, team product, and team checkout. And essentially what Alex has shown here is that these are covering both front end, back end, and database. Do you want to break that down any further or we'll probably kind of get there as we keep going? Yeah, I think the um, most important part here is really to embrace the mindset that micro front ends can really bring into. As much as the uh, technical challenges come across with it are exciting, um, the real benefit that comes across with that is that teams are now enabled to really provide value 
for the end customers and end consumers by focusing on what the high-level goals are. In this example, a team discovery might have a mission statement to help to discover new products and do that in the best possible way. So however that is being solved, whether it's like on improving the backend service to increase um, the speed a certain search might um, have, the way data is organized or the way it's visualized on the front end, it doesn't really matter. It's the entire team that is working to solve towards that problem. And it's a complete slice from um, the presentation layer down to the persistence. And so this really breaks out of the that kind of mindset of, we have an API services team. They do everything on the back end. This gets much more like customer focus, customer specific. It probably helps with uh, like agile or uh, safe type of scrum development. So your team is focused more so on the product itself than a large project. Exactly. Cool. Um, so yeah, the, the next illustration, Alex, we, we kind of have uh, some dotted lines around certain parts of a web page. So uh, this one just happens to be like Ikea, and there's a dotted line around a shopping cart, a search area, uh, what looks like an ad banner, and then kind of your main site. And and the, the thought here is that all of these different little areas are actually uh, micro front ends all serviced by those different teams, uh, essentially, and then separated applications as well. Is that correct? Exactly, yeah. So I took the example from from Ikea. Um, This is not an accurate reflection of what happens behind the scenes and how the micro front end um, is really split into pieces, but more an easy way to illustrate, um, as I think um, Ikea is just doing a phenomenal job on how they present um, the shopping experience. And I think back at, back at the time, I was using IKEA quite a lot to stock up um, something at home. Um, the really main part here is that um, there are certain functional elements within a website that can be completely isolated. There's a big um, search bar at the top of the page. It is very isolated and separate between the navigation and the actual content that's happening. And um, it fulfills a complete dedicated purpose. So this is a very, very easy functional slice that can be isolated into a micro front end. And it interacts very seamless within the entire experience as well. And very similar to that is a checkout. Um, If you think about your own e-commerce experiences online while shopping, there's usually a shopping cart icon somewhere in the top right corner indicating how many items you have already placed into your cart. And these are like also very traditional examples of where little elements and components that actually work independently from the overall experience work synchronously and asynchronously um, within a whole kind of stitched together. Yeah. And back in the classic days, um, you know, this, this might be WordPress or whatever, but when you did a search, it would actually like bring back an entire HTML piece and things like that. And you would have to code this entire setup on a single page. But what we're talking about is these are actually complete applications all on their own, calling their own APIs, the whole bit all the way to the back end, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I often draw the um, comparison to the Power Rangers just because I find it so, so matching. Um, you can really think of like micro front ends as small independent pieces that can actually work completely autonomously pretty much like every individual Power Ranger. But then within each episode, there's like the big battle. Um, Usually for front ends, it's finding the right customer, uh, finalizing the sale. Um, But in order to do that, they need to unite. 
and they need to work all together. And this is where like the power of front ends really comes into place. And then once all these individual applications are stitched together into a whole experience, it becomes extremely, extremely powerful. And that's why I find this, this metaphor is like very, very matching. I love it. Um, the, the part that I always think about um, when we start talking about that, you always have uh, all the Power Ranger pieces. And I always think of like Voltron. I, I think I'm getting my, my one right with the robot like dogs and then they all come together. But anyways, yeah, totally agree. Um, let's take a look at your other slide here. So um, some of the, some of the things here uh, to remember and, and benefits the incremental updates, I think for me is probably one of the biggest things that you'll get out of micro front end architecture. So um, we're going to break down micro front ends here in a minute, just a little bit further, but for me, just thinking about it at a very high level, like if you have a tiny little application and all you have to do is have this shell around it, having that piece that you can just like completely update all of the time and no one else has to worry about it or like test it for the most part, it's kind of awesome. Do you find that there's something even better in that key benefits area for you since you've been using it for, I don't know, three, four years now? I think for us, really the, the biggest benefit that comes into play is um, being autonomous and working as a team. The way we usually work is we adopted the shape-up process and from um, friends at Basecamp, uh, which is like an incredible way to do incremental um, feature discovery and a very quick um, developments with autonomous independent teams. So we usually have a combination of, let's say, a backend developer with a front-end developer working with a designer and US re UX researcher uh, solving a certain challenge. And just having that um, cross-functional collaboration between various team members is extremely powerful just because um, a solution is really something that is very holistically taken and accounts for a lot of scenarios that actually users would be coming in. So the user-centric focus is something that helped us a lot to do very quick iterations and just validating our product. So it's not so much about is this framework great? Is this API great? Um, are we doing um, a lot of fancy, funny things? Uh, which we do, but um, at the most part, it's something that actually helps end users. And that is something that we challenge every day. So Alex, uh, basically we've, we've talked a lot about uh, kind of micro front ends and people might be getting the general idea, but I thought it would be cool if you could show off some of what Chirpa is actually doing and, and show how like this, this whole uh, iframe situation is working. Would you mind doing that? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I've already pulled up here um, our one of our main solutions. Um, we call it Web App. Um, this is um, our own website um, that can be rediscovered. And one of the latest um, features that we deployed out is our embedded um, map element, as we call it. Um, so here you see like a completely um, integration on a host website, our own website with a header. Um, there's like a little banner around that. And you see here in that area, um, a little map. And if you go ahead and inspect um, our own website and see how it's built out, we actually see that um, the element itself here is embedded in an iframe. So we see that this entire highlighted um, box here is actually an entire iframe. 
And the really interesting part of that is that it completely blends into the user experience. Um, it is uh, just a part of the regular web experience, but it's fully interactive. You get the entire information around, um, in this case, travel restrictions all around the world. Uh, in this case, we're traveling from Canada to the United States. And um, you have an overview of what are the various regulations and things that need to be top of your mind. If we would follow this entire URL, I've already pulled it up here in our new tab, um, is exactly the same map experience that is um, currently loading and updating. And you can see that it adapts to the entire browser window. And this is one of our core concepts of um, adaptability of our uh, micro front ends. So the entire application, the micro front end is now here a map experience. And that map experience is an app on its own. It just completely works autonomously and um, can be configured in any way. So if you would want to hide um, the entire filters at the top and provide that programmatically through um, just the URLs that we specify, uh, then we can do that through a configuration that we built in. Um, same if, yeah. Is, is it possible, or how do you handle if you wanted to style something like in your shell, that original side, and then this map piece to cascade like styling into this iframe, or does it have to stay completely contained on its own? So that's a very interesting question. We follow two approaches. Um, one approach is to provide a configuration of some of the core values around what um, the representation would look like. Um, specifically, these are just configuration options around layout, if you want to hide and show various filters, but also how you would like to style them. That usually encompasses um, basic coloring and um, fonts. So one of the cool things that I can share um, the way, from like a technical perspective, I think what would be interesting for the audience is if you look at, um, the way we implemented this map specifically is that we exported and specified some of our base configuration on colors as CSS variables. Can, can you zoom in a little bit more? Oh, of course. Perfect. Sweet. Go ahead and um, inspect the element um, on the website. We see that all the colors and the entire uh, for some people that are using Angular Material that might look very familiar, um, the entire um, theme palettes from Angular Material are exposed as CSS variables. So that means at any given time, I can actually change them at runtime through a remote configuration, or I can pre-specify that and pull it into um, the micro front end from like a more central space. And um, that's our current strategy of providing a high-level customization with certain dials and knobs that you can influence. And everything that is beyond our second strategy and approach is that we provide partners with a way to inject their custom CSS into the integration script that we provide them. So that happens all behind the scenes, something that we custom build as a solution to provide a very convenient way to make those customizations happen. And then all the styling can uh, be done by those remote teams that know exactly how um, they need to adhere to their custom design system. And it is automatically pulled and part of the actual bundle that is being shipped to each partner individually. That's interesting. So, so you're actually bundling some of the, the and, and I assume through CSS variables, uh, you're bundling that build time then. 
And then they can actually override dynamically if they need to later. Exactly. And then all these like styling configurations are then just part of the actual shell application and the specific um, implementation configuration here that is then being loaded. That's pretty cool. How, how are you going about, and uh, maybe, maybe we should delve into this a little further, but um, how are you handling like when you say you do a build or a custom build for them, how are you providing those builds to these, um, to these other companies? Or is it like a private NPM repo? What does that look like? Uh, it's actually very simple. Um, we have a unique URL. It's our embedded, it's a widget.js file that needs to be loaded with certain query params um, that indicate through like an app ID um, which um, partner application that belongs to. And then behind the scenes, there are certain permissions that are being associated that scripts can only be loaded within a certain domain that are within the allowed list. Um, and then pulling in all the configuration that's specific to that application. So that allows a very flexible customization. And what actually happens behind the scenes is that we have one bundle, one build that has um, these customization placeholders in place and they can be augmented into the actual uh, compiled bundle. And then that combination of core application plus customization is then pulled into. Do you find as though like as you're creating these um, that the development time actually is slowed down because you have so many different uh, micro front ends to keep track of? It, it really depends on how you approach it. Okay. Um, for us, the biggest challenge is uh, keeping a consistent user experience. Um, because you have split out um, various interface elements into smaller subsegments, um, you also want to foster ideation and experimentation. So that means that you might have a user experience that is superior to the other because it's been more validated, um, because it has a different surface, because there's different users or user types that are visiting the net. So it went through different iterations in terms of like that product validation and the way the layout works, the way the functionality is actually implemented and works around is um, completely different than a very similar experience that is completely isolated into another um, micro front end. So the biggest challenge for us was just the realization that all these things are doing the similar um, things and have a different purpose. And um, we need to unify that. And um, what we're currently going through is bringing all our micro frontends into a single repository, adopting um, NX workspace from Narwhal and um, bringing all the frontends together so that we can share components specifically um, that adhere to our design system that we're building out as well and shared functionality within services and libraries. Yeah, you touched a minute on the design system side of that. Um, do you find as though like your design system needs to be fully thought out before that? So the current project that I'm working on, we're kind of going through this phase of the design system's not there yet. And we, we keep like plugging things in and then utilizing those into the different front ends. So for, for those who haven't done this before, just to kind of break this down a little bit, um, you might design a button, right? So that might become part of your, your core design system. But that button's going to have to maybe take on different colors depending on where you embed this thing. So if, you know, Coca-Cola wants it, uh, they might want their buttons all to be red and a certain height. Whereas 
if Pepsi wants it for their Mountain Dew, well, they're going to want a green button and probably some slick like cutoff angle on that thing. So do you find when you're when you're creating that design system and this thing ends up embedding into, you know, possibly embedding into other people's sites like that? Are you creating that design system as you're going or does a lot of that thought happen up front with uh, your designers working with your customers and understanding like what that looks like? I think we all thrive for and wish for that we um, could create everything at once and yeah. out of time and then utilize it as it best. The reality is that um, everything is moving at a high pace and often we just don't know how customizations might ending up. So um, we have to like just work on it continuously and um, develop it as we go. Um, our current approach is whenever we identify unique elements that are or should be part of our design system, we try to bring them in. We have a default light and dark theme that we then customize and adapt to adhere to the styling. And then um, once we have it in our design system, we then go back to the placements that we had before that used similar components and then refactor to actually then benefit um, from the now shared components that we have introduced. Yeah, I believe you guys are using atomic design like like we use. So there's kind of the, the tiniest little atoms that build to molecules and organisms. Um, so when we when we talk about that in your design system and you say, you know, like we've released, let's say that version one of the button, but then a customer comes in and says, okay, Alex, we're about to embed this thing and we need something totally different. Like we need a different size and you haven't had that in your design system yet. How do you then, you know, either version that across that mono repo so that everyone can get it? Um, what's, what's that look like in a micro front end architecture when you try to bring in those components to all of it? It's a very interesting question. Um, the way we try to think about it is um, very isolated. Um, we have our own design system and trying to create user interfaces that are meaningful uh, the way we think about them. So we're very conscious about uh, what elements we introduce for what purpose and trying to convey mostly around travel restrictions and providing um, an easy digestible way. Um, as you can imagine right now, travel restrictions are extremely complex yeah. and there's a lot of text that has to go through. There's so many conditions and so many um, exceptions that um, might be applicable to someone, but not to someone else. So segmenting that information into digestible elements and providing the context is a very interesting challenge for us. Um, and we're trying to do that with as mindful as possible. Um, as you can imagine, it sometimes just doesn't fully fit into the design system or the look and feel of a partner website, which we're integrating into through all micro front ends. Um, so the way we really think about it is it is a theme and it is a customization, but that sits on top of um, our own design system. So if someone wants to edit and um, change their buttons, um, we usually apply those stylings on our end, but also working currently on a solution that will allow um, partners to make these customizations more easier on their end. But we're not integrating these um, parts into our design system, but rather trying to think of um, if a button wants to have rounded corners applying a border radius, for instance, that becomes a variable. And then we're treating it as uh, a different variation. And then our default has a certain default value um, as our design system. And um, if a partner customization comes in and says, I want to have a square button, then that is very easy um, 
be able to like realize without actually any theming itself. Yeah. It's just a configuration. I think the the biggest part for me or the most challenging part right now, um, you know, you use that button, let's say in one micro front end, right? And you want it to be consistent across all of your items. And then you go to use it in another, but it's like, okay, but now we've allowed all this customization to occur where, you know, you can put an input in that says rounded corners or blue or, or whatever. And now all of a sudden it's like, how far off that path do you get before your design system is almost something like, it's almost just a custom button all to itself. I, I think there's a fine line there um, as you approach this that it really, became, and I could probably talk design system mm -hmm. all day long, so I won't go too far down this road, but I think it's important to think about trying to keep that consistency across your different uh, micro front ends and not allowing someone to talk you into hey, change your design system because we need this embedded. Like there has to be a cutoff to say, no, if, if you want this to be embedded, we have it very well tested for this specific button or component or whatever it might be. And we don't really feel comfortable like extending past that. You would have to become a one-off uh, kind of solution at that point. Mm -hmm. you, you take that and apply it. And that's that's kind of it's a judgment call. I think it depends on what you what you're working on and what your team can handle at that point. So also a good learning experience. Uh, what we discovered now over time is that we intended our placements to be in um, placed in like certain parts of the journey. Um, mostly our original embedded elements were designed to be uh, post booking, meaning you just booked your flight and here's a little um, widget or element that tells you, hey, you might be eligible and you need a visa, um, go and apply for one. Um, what we then started to see is that um, a lot of our partners started to use that within their discovery part. So at the very front of the journey, um, meaning you don't even have a destination in place, you're just looking for where you might wanna go. And um, often our widgets then get placed into models, but we ourselves had introduced models as well. So then you end up in a situation where you have a model in a model and it can get sometimes very interesting in terms of like how the end result actually looks like and you never intended that. So that is something that, that we took as a, as a learning and now incorporating less models, but more transformations of our elements to accommodate for these cases. So it's, it's very interesting. Uh, that is a fantastic example. The modal and immodal <laughs> gets uh, quite interesting, especially like with the overlays and things you have to deal with at that time. Um, so I know we're we're kind of kind of talking high level parts and pieces at this point. Um, I think for our our learning audience, most of most of them have worked at least in a a like a spy application or an Angular application specifically. Um, what I'd like to dive into is kind of what solutions like you've worked on at Sherpa around custom elements um, or web components. And then after that, we'll talk more what's what's about to occur in the Angular world. Can you, does it make sense to bring up the slides? Do they still fit for kind of today's world? Or do you want to talk about that just in general, like how web components fit into microfrontend? Yeah, um, let's keep it a little bit general, um, just because I have not updated the um, examples that are present in, in the slides. And there's quite a bit that has happened since then. Um, both the Angular Elements team have been working hard on um, improving the functionality and just the general developer experience. 
So might, that might just be a little bit outdated. Um, what is very interesting is for us, we were at the brink of deciding which route we wanted to go into. Um, should we create our micro front ends based on web components in a very generalized way? Uh, of course, utilizing Angular elements as our preferred um, architecture, just because we really love working with Angular, um, but also open up the space for introducing uh, more stencil or React-based web components, which would be very, very interesting to like mix and mingle all these various solutions into one holistic experience. Um, for us, the biggest part was um, to remain within uh, an iframe solution and um, utilizing not web components, but do micro apps. So each um, embedded element that we're working on is a macro app on its own. And it's a fully fleshed out uh, mini website that then can utilize um, web components in specifically like Angular elements, uh, but it doesn't have to. And then for us, the decision was then less of a question, should we introduce web components or how small should we create those uh, mini applications? Yeah, it's, that's interesting. We're running into the same thing right now. So I'm I'm glad you're here. I can pick your brain a little bit. So we, we actually have one application that we're working on right now. And uh, we wrote it uh, just kind of thinking, okay, this Angular application, um, and we're both using Norwal NX, by the way. Um, so we, we've written this application and we use the router and all this fun stuff. And then we go to take it and we're like, well, this needs to be embedded in, let's just call it a WordPress site, whatever whatever site, so a static HTML site, let's say. The, the business that we're working with is 100% against iframes. They just hate them. And it's just because they have a bad experience that they've dealt with for years. Um, and so then we're like, okay, well, we need to port that over to Angular Elements. And we start like breaking down into the structure and saying, okay, your app component just make that an element and then start utilizing all these other modules and components in Angular to kind of fit into that top level app component, right? And as, as we're doing this, we're realizing, oh, this isn't gonna work great with the router because that's like, it needs its own state. So we kind of had to like walk away from our original design and realize like, oh, okay. So if we're gonna embed this, like we probably don't want a router. That's that's like too gross. Like it's, you'd have to do a lot of manual coding around it. So we put it, our own state into this thing. And at that point, um, when we're exposing it, it's like, well, okay, this client doesn't love iframes, but what happens if the next one does? And so there's that moment of, okay, now we need to take this Angular element kind of core application. Um, in NX, we're actually just using a library at that point. And then we need to take that and make a shell. And then people can use that shell that is running a web component. And that is a micro app. And then our core application actually uses this thing too. So then we have a very top level shell. So we have a shell within a shell that runs a web component. And so that way you can get it three different ways. You can go to the main website, you can go to a different vendor and have it white labeled in their iframe like you guys are using, or that next level of just take our JS payload that builds out essentially and use that as a web component all on your own. And so it's, it's kind of this weird mixture in your mind of like, what am I writing? It's not, it's not a spa. It's, it's not like it's many things and it's, it's just been a, a crazy experience. So um, 
as that, sorry, that was a really long story, but <laughs> I just wanted to give you an idea of what we're working through. Uh, so from a, from a web component part of that, would you say like it's an okay approach to take all of these angular components, not custom uh, or not angular elements, but all of the components underneath that run angular and just have that one top level web component be an angular element, which is a web component. You say any issues that might come up with it? It's a very interesting question, like use case. We actually had exactly the inverse. We started with uh, a DOM approach, and um, we actually, our first version of our embedded widgets, uh, were really um, a plain handwritten TypeScript um, project adapting kind of a custom MVC pattern um, using mustache, simple template string replacements, and it worked fantastic. Um, what it would do, it would insert the custom elements, not as web components, but as like actual DOM elements into the parent website. Okay. And um, what we discovered a lot were just like concerns from partners around security, around analytics. Um, there's a lot of interesting things that we would like to measure. And um, of course, not every partner um, was very keen on having all these metrics and measurements just being exposed, even though yeah. we would not even really look at that. Um, so that was our, our main motivation to then really sec away and um, look more closely at iframes. We had iframes as a core part um, before, but for like most embedded experience, um, it was not very prominent. And that was our motivator to then jump really into the iframe solution. Um, the core of what we do is exactly that. Um, we create essentially a shell. In our case, it is not an embedded web component. It is um, JavaScript, a kind of module that gets exported to the um, window DOM. And that acts as a shell. So everything is like managed within that um, little component that gets downloaded as like a JavaScript file. And very similar to the approach that you're um, mentioning, having that encapsulated into a separate web um, app component or like web component um, is exactly the same approach. Um, so for us, it just made sense to have that most outer shell that is like a minimal web component or just a JavaScript um, kind of environment um, that then is able to manage all these like micro frontends. So taking over the, um, the responsibility of an orchestrator or manager or even the shell um, as it's usually described in the micro frontend world. And then within each application, you then have replicated that in a very similar way because then each micro frontend has individual responsibilities and needs to maintain state. Um, for us, micro frontends are, if you go back to design system organisms. So there are compositions of various other um, user interface elements, but they also have service connectivity and state. Um, so that might be in a very simple case, a simple organism that has um, state attached to it. It might not have any interaction points, but it just displays information that it's pulling in independently. And sometimes there's transition effects. There's like a details page that gets pulled in and you transition and move components around within that small micro front-end app. Uh, we just recently launched um, our latest edition of Map. So the entire map is actually uh, microfronted on its own and has individual components within. But each component can then be isolated and um, brought out as well. So that's just a very, very interesting aspect. Um, when when, when but, you're writing like those components within that map, are you using just Angular components um, just as is, or are those becoming web components as well? 
Long term, they might be. Um, for us right now, it's more relevant to have them nicely isolated as Angular components okay. and being addressable through like a main route or navigation. And um, they're always loaded in, in iframes. So that's for us not really a case. Uh, long term, I can see that being just web components that then load more independently and actually um, stripping down functionality that is necessary to maintain and manage um, to then isolate more further down and then have web components that are being loaded either independently into the application experience as like a bundle that can be delivered or um, within our framework within iframes. Nice. That's, that's pretty interesting. You you said something else that kind of piqued my interest too. Um, when you talk about like state, are, are you doing like a lot of API calls out of that that shell side for for like continuing state or are you use, utilizing like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The local uh, database in the browser or how does, how does that look for your applications usually? Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, usually we try to maintain state um, bound to the individual um, embedded element as much as possible to like that individual micro front end. Um, as you can imagine, if you have like multiple placements within one site to show different um, elements, yeah. uh, state might become shared. Um, the way we're trying to treat it is, um, let's say a search functionality, you're going from A to B, um, let's say Toronto to New York, um, then that information piece can be considered as a global state, whereas then each element individually enhances that um, a to B information with more specific information that's specific to each element individually. So shared global state mixed in with local state is, is very interesting. And that's where the shell comes in um, as the responsibility to maintain that state. Uh, we kept it very lean. Um, there's a lot of interesting solutions out there that um, try to unify it. Um, the way we approach it is state is just like a single JSON object um, that is then being accessible and streamlined down into each component. And when you talk like that JSON object, are you passing that via API somehow or because you you always have that shell because you're in a, a single, um, like, yeah, single micro front end uh, uh, iframe at that point, like you can just pass it within that entire application at a global level for what you're doing? Yeah, for us, the flexibility comes within the mindset of um, you need to be embedded. Yeah. And that happens through usually iframes. If you think about mobile experiences, uh, being in a web view, um, at the end of the day, it's also just a web address that is being routed to. So a lot of our core state is uh, replicated in the URL as query params. So ah, the core information yeah. that um, you're traveling from Toronto to JFK is actually encoded in the URL and managed through our SDK conveniently. So that gives us the flexibility to have a very easy way with a SDK and an interface to integrate very conveniently. You just need to invoke some parameters and options and pass it and say, create element and mount it. Um, whereas um, if you don't have the ability because you might be running in a mobile environment, you created your own mobile app, but want to provide a web view towards embedding that specific um, element, then all you need to do is assemble that URL in a specific way and you gain the same exact experience. Yeah, that's, that's pretty neat. Um, it, it's interesting how, how you're using the query params because I, I feel like in certain instances that probably works well, but like if we talk about that IKEA instance, right? So you had your 
your product page at the bottom that you might be selecting products, but then your shopping cart was a different uh, micro front end altogether where it might say, you know, one product, two products, seven, like it keeps adding up. You're actually having to talk between those two things. And if you don't have a true shell surrounding both of those and you have to update both those instances separately, like all of a sudden it's, well, it looks kind of gross to put that in the query params at the top level URL. So now all of a sudden like an API has to come into play or something within the browser there. So the interesting aspect of the way we are trying to like think about that is um, to take it as isolated as possible and move um, away from things that are encapsulated within the browser but run through services. Um, that becomes very interesting if you talk about authentication. Assuming you're like locked in somewhere and then your actual state of each widget or micro front end needs to change and adapt to because now you're in a locked in state. Yeah. And, um, Isolating that entirely and not having shared state that contains that information uh, becomes extremely handy because then each micro front end remains autonomous, but then is bound within that um, state of login and authentication. And then having dedicated services that then can communicate with each other, but then it's a shared state from kind of like a service or um, a backend that comes through. Yeah. So there's, it, it kind of starts like you start to realize for people that are listening, when you go from a, a single app instance, some of these things are just very inherent. Like you have a, a service in Angular and you can call that service amongst all these different components um, or there's there's many different methodologies. But when you start to look at it, well, wait a minute, now I'm in a completely separate application that's running. Now you have to think kind of that next level up of what is actually occurring. Um, so the the other thing that we're running into right now, um, which which kind of starts to play into this this new Angular 12 and a flag in Angular 11 is is module module federation. I always have a hard time saying that. Um, and what what kind of has been going through my mind is that works. I feel like if you're dealing with a and maybe we should break down what that actually is before I go down my tangent. But um, basically what I want to talk about is when you don't have a top level Angular app and you're, you're trying to get to that modular federation uh, capability. So would you mind like starting to kind of talk about what module federation is and then I'll, I'll go on my crazy tangent? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I'm not a thorough expert on that as well, but I'm monitoring and looking at um, the current happenings very closely just because it is a very interesting topic. And um, it's a, kind of like a new feature set that comes with a pack 5 that allows you to specify a remote address to be pulling in your bundles at a build time, which um, brings a lot of flexibility in because now you can independently build remote assets that then can be assembled together, kind of like as a federated module um, into your own bundle. And that means that teams now have the ability to push out changes very independently and uh, complete applications that rely and have these as dependency can pull those in um, kind of like remotely. And that is a very, very interesting concept that enables a lot of really interesting feature sets. Um, so far as I've seen it, um, it is a very good use case for large enterprise applications with several teams, with several independent responsibilities and complete different um, schedules 
um, where that can be extremely powerful. In our case, having like a lot of control around the individual elements and um, embedded widgets that we're developing, um, it is a little bit too much yeah. um, just because the trade-offs are not exactly there. For us, the biggest trade-off is really to have a single repository and then um, building and deploying these individual applications um, as we need them. So the the thing that um, the customer that I'm working for right now, the, they already have a couple of applications that have been up spun up recently. And my understanding, when you're in the Angular world, at least uh, for Module Federation, the, the cool part is you can tell it what uh, version of Angular it actually relies on. So let's say your overall shell, the, the very top level, um, it's actually on Angular 12, which will be the newest, hopefully in a, a month or two. Um, that And when that's up at top, if you want to load anything that relies on Angular 12, you can tell it that this application is already running this this version. And when you go to reload, or when you when you go to load that site based on that URL mechanism, it already can say, oh, well, I don't have to reload all of Angular 12 all over again. So therefore you get like a performance benefit and you don't get that hit. And then it just kind of flows in as if it already has the framework loaded up and ready to go. However, if you are like this company I'm working for and they just spun up their app not that long ago on Angular 8 and they don't want to do that, you can also say, hey, this is running Angular 8, and as we bring that in, don't do anything with it because we haven't tested it for 12 yet. So I, I see some things there that you're you're really going to have to think about as you go to like utilize those applications because at some point, you're going to want to take that thing from 8 to 12, and then that becomes an interesting use case in that top-level shell. Now... Does that top level do all the routing for all of these? Does each uh, application within it do routing? And so it kind of starts to unpack all of these other things that you probably haven't thought about yet when you start to use micro front ends. But there's a lot of great capability there um, to, to really get, like, like you said, across all these trains and teams that we might have on. Now we just allowed like six teams to work completely, I don't want to say isolated, but on their own, um, their own path and at their own speed and get these, these features out when they feel like they fit their customer the best. And it provides that flexibility that we kind of spoke about on your slide deck there. So uh, what, do, what do you think about 12 and, and where things are heading at? It sounds like you're not going to adopt it right away, but maybe in the future. Oh, definitely looking forward to that. One thing that, that we haven't talked much about is actually the implications of more, um, various micro front ends is to increase bundle size because yeah. each application individually has to bootstrap, has to load its dependencies. And that's exactly as you explained, uh, where module federation comes in extremely handy to have like a more shared um, approach on that part. Um, for us specifically, um, usually the amount of embedded elements is fairly lean. There's only um, a few placements that might be continuously within the same experience. Um, and the way we're trying to combat that is to having very lean applications and shells. Our initial bootstrap script is, is very small. There is um, very little logic associated with it. It's just the orchestration coordination piece of that. And then each uh, embedded element itself has 
a lot of lazy loaded routing, lazy loaded modules, uh, which is something we're exploring even on a component level. Um, there's some really interesting um, things that are happening at the moment. Um, right now we're like sacrificing functionality um, over these micro optimizations, um, just because in our performance tests, um, it doesn't impact the end users that significantly. Um, just because we're trying to keep the interactions and each micro app fairly lean on its own, and that's working out pretty well. Um, another topic around that is um, when it comes down to mixing different technologies. I think one thing that helps us a lot is to maintain our tech stack. So we're not mixing various technologies. Uh, we're trying to utilize everything that we have in a very consistent way. Um, so even though microfrontends open up the possibilities to choose the best framework for the best situation, in practice, the best framework that is usually the one that you already have and where you have in-house knowledge and uh, can really utilize what you know what you can do um, to achieve kind of great product excellence. Um, so even though it might be appealing to mix and match um, all these various technologies in practice, I find it it's actually more effective to keep one tech stack very consistent and then introduce bits and pieces only where it really, really makes sense. And then with um, the upcoming Angular 12 version, uh, I'm quite excited mostly about like the um, embedded inline styling uh, opening up more since version, I think 11.2 now um, for also opening up um, Tailwind CSS, which we're not using, um, but I'm strongly considering just because it is a very exciting um, project. And then going back to like bundle sizes, uh, which then also optimizes a lot on the CSS front. So the CSS performance um, is also an interesting um, part that I think is often overseen um, with like the front-end development. And um, we're looking forward to like doing a couple of things on our end with the next upcoming months as well. That's really exciting. Yeah, we, we actually use Tailwind for next our next JS product for uh, CodingCat Dev. And it's it's been fantastic. They're just now announcing kind of their just-in-time compiler, or you know, I don't know if it's technically a compiler, but you don't have to worry so much about that that bundling size, and you get immediate results coming back too. So it's some exciting stuff coming out um, for Tailwind. Uh, so I I want to jump into our perfect picks next. If if you're uh, if you are as excited as I am, I love our perfect picks. I've had so many people comment, I never even heard of that. Now I'm so excited about it. So um, your, your first one that I have up here, I hope. Here we go. Um, tell me all about this, uh, this Redocracy. It's a, it's a super exciting project. Um, it is really bringing a little bit um, shift and different thinking of how we consume content. Um, over the past, I think, two years, um, the way we think about content on the web has really shifted around um, what is true, uh, what is like meaningful content, and who are the influencers, who are the opinions and thought leaders that we always navigate and, and toward, like um, navigate or like um, go towards to to consume the content. And um, Redocracy is is a platform that. Um, provides you with um, credibility around the content that you consume, but also the content that you create. And that is a very, very interesting aspect um, for like sharing um, informative articles around various topics and then providing that credibility around 
uh, I'm actually an expert in these areas because it is proven. Uh, I've read articles since years in, in that space, or I've been writing articles um, and content around that space, and it's all discoverable. So um, it is a fantastic platform. And if anyone is interested, I'm happy to, um, to facilitate. I have a few um, invites that I can give out to the audience as well. I Very recommend cool. Yeah, I, I don't know if uh, if we can put that link in the the blog, but uh, we'll talk offline and we'll we'll figure that out. That's awesome. Perfect. Um, cool. So my pick, it's it's not nearly okay. Maybe it's exciting, but it's not nearly as exciting as that. I don't think. Um, but this is this is a person that I've I've followed for many years, Todd Moto. Um, when I was getting uh, into Angular. Uh, at the very beginnings, he was around. I don't know that Ultimate Courses was around, but I figured since I was I was chatting with Alex, um, it was a perfect time to bring this up because I don't think I've perfect picked Todd's site. Um, so I used to, I, I swear, I think it used to be toddmoto.com or something like that. And then he started kind of branching out and like pulling, putting this whole thing together. Um, so this was this was kind of my first site that I really... Um, or at least Todd's original site that I really started learning Angular on. So I thought I'd throw this out here for Ultimate Courses. Um, if you haven't heard Todd's story, that's what I find m most incredible. And I'm always looking for people that haven't taken the traditional route through learning. So like myself, I went to university, I got a master's degree, but Todd's kind of all self-learned and uh, you know, now he's a Google developer expert and teaching courses and everything else. So I just, I love, love the story and I love the the site. So super cool. Also, I recommend to follow on Twitter. He's always sharing. Great yes, hundred percent agree. He's a great follow on Twitter. Awesome. Uh, any, any last thoughts here, Alex, before I, before I let you go for the night? Yeah, um, I think one of the resources that we can also share um, is just like the GitHub collection for like microfrontend resources. Um, for everyone that is just like very interested in learning more about microfrontends, there are so many facets and so many different ways of thinking around it. Um, it all comes down to um, providing like a very unique experience in like a stitched, patched way. Uh, which is very fascinating. But from a technology perspective, there's so many different routes and ways you can go about it. And um, I highly recommend to start exploring that. Um, the next couple of years will be very interesting on that micro front end. I am bringing it up right now just so that we can, uh, we can grab it here. One second. So we'll, of course, put this in the notes and have it out on the blog. But this is, this is the GitHub repo, correct? So... Exactly. There's, there's lots, lots of content. Yeah, there's tons of tons of content in here. So we'll have this in the blog. Um, won't be able to read through them all right now, but there's a ton out there. Very cool. Great, great call out. I would have totally forgot that, Alex. Thanks so much. No worries. Thanks for having me today. Thanks. I appreciate it.